What's up, Bike Rumor fans? Welcome back to the Bike Rumor podcast. So with all of the COVID stuff going on and hopefully some vaccines very close to us, you know, we've seen a few of our friends that are cyclists get COVID, kind of test positive with it. And one in particular, my buddy Trey, who you may recognize as a somewhat casual contributor here on Bike Rumor, had earlier this year and ended up seeing a heart specialist. And as luck would have it, he's, well, first one, he's all better, but as luck would have it, we were also... Uh, reached out to Dr. Rand McLean, who is the Chief Medical Officer of LCR Health and is has a lot to say on heart health surrounding, you know, co- during COVID, post-COVID and stuff like that. So what we wanted to do today was really talk about how COVID affects the heart, in particular the heart of an athlete. And for us cyclists, this is especially relevant because it's not just while you have COVID, but there could be some really lingering long-term effects if we don't take care of ourselves during it. So whether you've had it or you know somebody that's had it, we're going to dive right in. If you got Trey, how's it going? Hey, good. How are you, Dahlia? Good, good. Rand, how are you today? I'm doing great. No complaints here. Awesome. Well, thank you both for making the time to be on the show. So let's let's start with kind of the basics. Um, you know, for me, like I fortunately have not had COVID, but, you know, Trey, maybe when you first you didn't even know you had it. It was something else triggered. But like, what were those first signs where you kind of said, oh, something's going wrong here? Yeah. So, um, I ride mountain bikes, bicycles in general, um, used to race and I know my body pretty well. And, you know, I have a background in sports medicine, so I used to do a lot of cardiovascular testing and whatnot. So I'm, I'm pretty familiar with my body and what it's doing, even with, especially with age now, uh, 48. Um, I was on a bike ride with my wife on some trails behind our house uh, that we ride all the time. And uh, I got really um, almost anxiety, like um, exhausted. I, I was having trouble breathing, uh, just real short of breath. And I felt like I wasn't getting oxygen all of a sudden. And I had to stop. We were on a, a minor incline exiting the trail. And, you know, I started thinking back and uh, my father passed away from heart disease when he was 61, about uh, 14 years ago or so. And so immediately I started thinking, you know, maybe I have I'm predisposed to having the same kind of conditions because a lot of the things he went through kind of were similar. So uh, my wife immediately told me, OK, you need to go see a cardiologist because I was way overdue. Uh, and uh when I went, uh, they said, well, let's set you up for a battery test. You know, we'll do the, the stress test and echocardiogram and whatnot. Uh, and, but before I could do any of that, because of COVID, I was required to have a COVID test to be cleared. And back then it was really hard to get a test. People were having to wait weeks, but, uh, Emory healthcare has a, uh, system in place where anyone getting a procedure done gives immediate testing in 24 hour results. So, when it got tested and it came back positive, which I was pretty surprised because we've been really careful as far as, you know, social distancing, not going places, not visiting uh, and whatnot. But there was somewhere along lines, obviously, somehow we slipped somewhere. And uh, so then I had to go through a um, period of quarantine for two weeks. And then even after that, uh, and we, I'll go to it later, but it was a very bizarre experience. Uh, I was not really, I should not have been what would be considered uh, symptomatic. 
I think uh, I would have typically been a asymptomatic uh, case, uh, but because of my activity levels and doing things like that, I basically introduced COVID to my system uh, due to the inflammation that takes natural inflammation that takes place during exercise in your body. And um, I spent the next uh, few months just kind of recovering. I never had anything above a low-grade fever, but I had this constant fatigue, this exhaustion. Uh, my blood oxygen was low. And my heart rate, my resting heart rate was 20, 25 beats higher than it normally was uh, for some time after uh, I'd been cleared. So yeah, we're gonna, uh, I'm going to get, we'll come back to that because I want to talk to you about how you were kind of keeping track of your you know health metrics and all that. But Rand, maybe you could speak to why you think Trey's little easy backyard ride kind of kicked this off. Like what, what was it about exercise that sort of, you know, he had COVID, but didn't even know it until this. Well, you picked a great guess because Trey's example is classic for an athlete getting COVID, um, including, you know, being aware of what's going on with your body. But, you know, I'm sure any athlete out there is, is that's hearing this is, is remembering, yeah, I get all the colds, everything that comes around because athletes are typically pushing the edge of the envelope, right? Um, not formally overtraining, but when you're working that hard, it's a well-known fact, not just amongst athletes, but about, you know, amongst their doctors too, that you're, you're more susceptible. You're lowering your immune system. And I know it goes counter to the grain that most people think, well, gosh, I'm, you know, the athlete's got to be in the best shape of all, right? Well, cardiovascular, yes. But in terms of your immune system, because you're, again, pushing the edge of the envelope, typically, if you're trying to advance in any way in, in your sport, you're, you're more susceptible. So, I mean, what I've, what I'm hearing is, is classic for, I'd say, you know, most of my patients in my practice are athletes. Uh, if they're not at Trey's level, they're at least, um, you know, focused on, on staying fit. And, and this is what I hear all the time. So, um, you know, the, the, just to pick one of them, the, the, the oxygen saturation, the problem is we're not sure that could be coming from lung damage or heart damage. So, you know, you have to open yourself up to some testing and, um, you know, you say we'll go back and revisit some of the metrices that were looked at. But, um, I mean, I have a list that, you know, anyone who, who has COVID and is an athlete and wants to be careful as they come back. And when I say careful, I mean, uh, you know, the average person can come back and if they're regaining their prior fitness slowly but surely that's good enough but if and maybe we'll find out this uh when we hear a little bit more from trey if this happened to him but if it starts to to sputter or certainly if it goes backwards then there's a barrage of tests some diagnostic testing that i think uh needs to be implemented to make sure you don't have lingering effects that if you let them uh if you let them recover you'll be fine in the long term presumably because this is, you know, I hate to say it's just another virus, but it is a virus. And we all go through uh, viruses throughout our life, and they can uh, attack the heart. It's one of the major causes of myocarditis. Um, but Which is inflammation of the heart, right? Yes, I'm sorry. No, that's all right. Um, <laughs> just make sure we're yeah, right. I think talking in layman's terms, too. <laughs> I beg your pardon. There, there are two major... Uh, contributors in terms of viruses that, that make up most of 
the um, the uh, heart inflammation uh, cases we have, um, and and a lot of us have had those viruses. Uh, but it doesn't mean just because you had it once, you can't have it again in just a milder form. So anyway, it's very prevalent, more prevalent, I would argue, with athletes than the uh, standard population because we do things that make us uh, more prone to getting these viruses, whether it's you know pushing hard and reduce the immune function or, you know, look, we ride in groups oftentimes, um, you know, we travel, right, for races, Um there's a lot, of, a lot of factors that, that contribute to athletes being more susceptible. But the main viruses causing, uh, anyway, my, viral myocarditis, which is the main source, again, a viral source of, of this heart inflammation, are um, uh, parvovirus B19, which most of us had when we were pretty young, uh, and then a herpes, uh, human herpes virus 6, believe it or not. And others are adenoviruses, which are, you know, uh, kind of your stronger than average colds typically, or enteroviruses such as, you know, a GI bug. It's not the food poisoning, you know, it goes away in 24 hours, but lingers for two or three days. Those are also sources. So um, anyway, uh, Trey, I'm interested to hear more about how you progressed. Well, let me yeah. just real quick. Sorry, Trey, I do too. Um, I want to ask them why we're still on kind of this myocardial thing and the, you know, what it is. So what is it about these viruses or in, in particular the coronavirus, the COVID-19? What is it about that that actually causes heart inflammation? And then why is heart inflammation bad? Like what what is it actually doing that's negative inside the body? Well, the, the COVID, I'm sure you've heard, can can attach to uh, ACE2 receptors, and they're in your GI tract, or in their heart, and your lungs. So that's how they enter the the system, and the damage caused. You know, there's too much inflammation. Which, if there's not, too, let me put it this way: if there's not too much inflammation, then there's uh, a good chance of recovery without any long-term damage. Okay. But if you go past that line, then the long-term damage we're looking at is is scarring or fibrosis. And, you know, you you think about any muscle you have, if you have an injury to that, if it's scarred or fibrotic, or you even just look at skin, it doesn't work as well as it used to. And the heart has to, obviously, multiple times a minute, move flexibly and in a certain manner, um... And if it's scarred up, it's going to change the structure, the morphology of the heart and make it um, uh, not work as well oftentimes, depending upon the extent of the damage. And the other factor is the heart works uh, somewhat differently than skeletal muscle in that it's got a very intricate system of uh, electrical wiring, if you want to call it that, that moves through these muscle cells. And if you scar across that, you're going to change the electrical system and that can uh, throw anybody off too and that's what you're seeing in patients you're not only seeing uh, a result of inflammation uh, affecting the plumbing we'll call it so that there's less output signs of what we call congestive heart failure where what, what we call the ejection fraction the amount of, of blood that can be ejected through the heart with each beat is reduced but we're also seeing episodes of uh, atrial fibrillation or other, um, uh, um, again, electrical events that are abnormal. And um, again, that it harkens back to what Trey was saying. 
one of the things he noticed was uh, an elevated heart rate. And, and that's a sign that, yes, something's amiss there. Now, could it have been because he's not getting enough oxygen in the lungs or through the lungs? Or was it because the heart wasn't uh, functioning well enough to get his typical ejection fraction? Again, that's where I'm interested to hear more about how, uh, you know, the, the detective work uh, uh, succeeded, you know, with, with uh, um, I think you said it was Dr. Kim, right? Yeah. Uh, but that's that's definitely a sign. If 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 after the COVID uh, signs and symptoms of you know after two weeks have passed, you still have an elevated heart rate heart rate. Excuse me. Then that's an issue. Yeah, it was an obvious correlation between the two. Uh, one didn't change without the other. It was pretty night and day. You know, I worked in PT for years and I dealt with pulled muscles and whatnot. And you know, the muscle fibers, uh, like in your muscles and heart, they're like stacked bricks. So if you go and imagine trying to patch, if you pull a muscle or you have damage to your heart, you get that scar tissue. It's like taking a broken wall and repatching that broken wall. And you've got that, and that's permanent. That doesn't go away. Just like if you scar your knee, you know, from skinning it and it, it can create anything from a stiffer area to a thicker area. And just like he was saying, it's hard for it stiffens the muscles in the heart as well as hinders the pathways for all the electrical signals and blood flow and all kinds of stuff. And, uh, and that was my biggest fear, uh, just having familiarity with pulmonary and, you know, cardio, fun cardio function. My immediate, uh, worry was I was less, I wasn't that worried about having COVID since I hadn't really ex experienced the extreme symptoms. I was worried about the long-term effects and when I had it, my first symptoms, I just looked at the calendar, was uh, mid-July. So back in mid-July, I mean, we knew a fraction about this stuff than we know now. So back then, and, and my cardiologist is a sports cardiologist who's done some extensive studies with athletes. Uh, he's published in JAMA on a few articles about it. But the, uh, the unknowns then uh, were night and day compared to now. So I, I was pretty scared uh, uh, because the last 30 years of my life has been a cyclist and prior to that I was a swimmer so I'm pretty used to having a cardiovascular ability even though I'm by no means an athlete to, by today's measure but uh, it was stressful and uh, you know and the the best the best I guess to put it in layman's terms, my symptoms were really, really bizarre. Uh, and I've talked to several people since that have reached out to me after finding out that I've had it and then they get it and then they have lots of questions and whatnot. And, uh, and a lot of us have similar stories and, I, and a few of these are pro level athletes that I'm talking to. And, uh, you know, it's deceptive. You, get tested negative. You, you're feeling fine. In fact, I, I would say 85% of the time during my quarantine, I was, I felt fine. I was tired. Uh, and little things like going upstairs exhausted me, which was bizarre, but I just kind of figured anytime your body is going through something and trying to heal, it's going to have those kind of fatigue symptoms. So, uh, I got my clearance from a negative test. And I was getting ready to schedule uh, the cardio testing, like the stress test and whatnot. Uh, and my doctor said he wanted to wait a little bit because, you know, they wanted to wait about a month or so to get over things. So um, 
when I had got my negative result, I talked to the nurse. And this is how mixed messaging uh, starts. I talked to uh, just a general, I guess, uh, nurse at Emory. And I, my first question after getting my negative result is, when can I ride? <laughs> so like any anxious uh, uh, active person, and especially when the weather, I mean, the weather was beautiful at this point. And uh, I'm thinking, you know, I can't wait. She said, plain as day, hey, go. If you, as long as you feel okay, uh, go ahead and ride. Because her nor anyone really knew what the effects were at the time. So, uh, and just by coincidence, uh, not even an hour later, I get a call from uh, the attending with Dr. Kim, uh, Dr. Uh, so, and he said, do not ride your bike. <laughs> and he was a cyclist. Uh, he, he's actually, uh, he was familiar uh, with uh, what I had been through. And he, you know, he, he called me from his cell phone. And he's like, hey, don't ride because we're now finding out that even though you're through this, uh, there could still be something causing damage and you don't want to make it worse. So, of course, then I go from excited to ride to, oh, crap, here we go again. Uh, like, like this may not be over. Uh, so, long story short, I waited a couple of weeks and decided, you know, I feel great. I'm going to go out and just do something really easy. Three miles, three, four miles, flat, flattish roads. And I went out one day, felt good, came back, and then uh, went out the next day. I was like, you know, I feel pretty good. I'm not really feeling any symptoms. And now, mind you, I haven't got my heart rate up at all. I've, I've kept it pretty low. And uh, so the third day, I decided to go out and just go do an easy trail ride. Uh, and we've got trails behind our house. Uh, that's basically my private trail system. And uh, and I felt okay. Uh, you know, I was I'm trying not to you know overhype uh, how I felt uh, during the ride. You know, I had ridden for a couple of months at this point, and the next day, I felt like I'm getting run over by a truck. Uh, just I was super fatigued. Uh, just wasn't feeling good uh, and I felt that shorter breath. My uh, blood oxygen wasn't uh, what it normally is. Uh, my heart rate, my resting heart rate was during sleep was, I think it was mid seventies. Usually it's high forties to mid fifties. Uh, so uh, that's when I started thinking, okay, this stuff's real. And what I used to do in the past, uh, when I was sick, I could go out and ride and sometimes it'd make me even feel better. But this is one of those things I couldn't listen to my body and trust it. Uh, it kind of pissed me off because I'm, <laughs> I, you know, I'm used to doing, being able to like know my body exactly when and when I can't push myself. So and, up, up to that point, like when you went out for that easy ride and then the next day you felt like crap, were you tracking your blood O2 and your resting heart rate up until then? Or did, is that when you started tracking it? Uh, I probably, you know, I can't, I can't think of the data. I know I was tracking my heart rate. Um, like, cause what I'm getting at is like up until that was like your blood O2 good and your, um, 
you're resting heart rate good and you're like, okay, I'm back to normal. And then all of a sudden, like, no, one it, it ride, was actually, it was, lower than, yeah, it, no, it was, it, it was, uh, not, I can't remember exact numbers, but typically my blood oxygen has always been high nineties constantly. Uh, Garmin sent me a watch that measures, uh, blood oxygen and heart rate. And, you know, it's given or it's give or take, it's about a 2%, uh, margin of error, probably, uh, but I knew bulk, at least as long as it was giving me ballpark numbers and that it was a consistent measurement to go by, you know, at least I had something to kind of stare at and kind of see where I was at. Well, my blood oxygen typically would, it was hovering around mid 80s to low 90s, which usually it's 98 to 100%. Um, but then around then is when, you know, I, I'm just thinking like, huh, that's kind of weird that it's just staying around there, but I feel fine. And, but when I did go out and exercise, uh, here's the weirdest thing after that one ride, uh, my heart rate, once I can go from my heart rate max to rest in no time, I'm talking like in, Less than 60 seconds, my heart rate will drop pretty quickly. Uh, I remember sitting outside on the steps uh, out back uh, after my ride, and I could not get my heart rate below 130. Uh, after, I mean, I sat there for about 20 minutes. It took about 20 minutes to get down to 100, which is crazy to me. Uh, so... A lot of those kind of things were, well, this is what I kind of get at taking bizarre, what was bizarre about it. Uh, and this is, this is several, this is a few, this is weeks after I had been cleared and it was negative. Right. So, uh, Rand, I want to like actually go back a minute because you talked about like if it, if it gets real bad, you know, if we're not paying attention and we overdo it, then we end up with, you know, scarring and some other possible electrical damage inside the heart. But what if, you know, like, it starts with, you know, more general inflammation and stuff like, so when, when the heart muscle inflames, are we talking about like, is it just swelling a little bit to where the amount of volume inside to be able to pump blood shrinks or like something else? Like, what is it? How is that inflammation negatively affecting its ability to function before you get into, you know, electrical and scarring issues? Well, again, to use uh, Trey's example, I mean, uh, just think of regular, you know, think of your quads when they start getting swollen for whatever reason, for, you know, third spaced water, you know, the, the wrong kind of water, the edema or, um, uh, you know, they're, they're packed full of blood um, for, for whatever reason. They don't function as well, right? And your heart now is is carrying this extra water and the the, the the water between the cells is blocking the transference of anything chemically that's supposed to be transferred. It's, it's almost literally gumming up the works and that's going to affect your, your output that, um, uh, you know, before, again, before you get to electrical system issues, it's going to change the shape of the heart thinking when it's being stretched. And that's why uh, one of the mandatory diagnostics should include an echocardiogram because you can visualize the heart. You can see where you can actually measure where you've got um, uh, wall thickness, um, you know, increased thickness because of the edema, the excess water. 
And um, yeah, I mean, that's, that sounds like exactly where you were, although you can't necessarily rule out the lung at this point, but, you know, Trey uh, being an athlete, you know, you're in an, in an unusual position to look at this stuff because I mean, even some of the, the, the finest athletes, certainly of my generation, I guys, I got you guys by a decade. I mean, we were, we weren't even checking resting heart rate when we woke up in the morning it was like, Hey, feel good. Jump on the bike. Let's ride. Good enough for me. Um, and, and you, it sounded like you were checking your heart rate and seeing it 20, 30 points above normal. And we all know four to four to six beats above your normal morning resting heart rate means you've overtrained. So something yeah. was way off. And even though we can get uh, you know a pulse oximeter for twenty nine ninety nine off Amazon delivered you know with Amazon Prime overnight, a lot of people don't have those. But that was another major sign. Um, I don't know <laughs> if that was after the fact. You saw the eighty five to low nineties. Uh, or, or before the fact, but if it was before the fact, then yeah, again, you're like so many other athletes, you know, it's like, well, maybe, maybe the pulse oximeter is broken. <laughs> let, let me just try this out. And, and right. you, yeah, yeah. we say that we listen to our body. Well, I put it on my family. I put it on everyone I knew that I had access to and all of them's were, all of theirs were fine. So, well, that was a clear signal then, but you know, again, most athletes will, even though we claim to be in tune with our body and maybe you, you know, again, you were in tune, but there's also that inkling in, in most uh, driven athletes to, to, to push it. And, and you made a comment earlier, you know, it's almost like we say, well, let's just blow the carbon out of the carburetor. And I realize we don't have carburetors in cars anymore, but you know what I'm saying? It's uh, you get on the bike and say, well, maybe I'll feel better after I'm done. I just got to get things moving. Right. Uh, classic uh, mistake that athletes make and, and I'm not pointing fingers. Uh, we all do it, but yeah, that, that, that probably puts you in a worse boat because, and this is the whole point of, of if things aren't going the right way, stopping immediately um, because pushing at this point can make something mild turn into something much worse. So what is yeah, for people who that, have a blood oximeter or um, are trying to restrain heart rate? And I actually wanted to ask too, if like uh, heart rate variability comes into play at all with this, but like what, you know, like resting heart rate is going to vary for everybody, I think, depending on their level of fitness. But what's a typical range of um, blood oxygen oxygenation that is good? Well, you should be seeing just sitting around, you know, 98 to 100 percent oxygenation, right? If you're talking about um, a tool that can measure you precisely enough to be accurate. And that's that's a big factor. So a lot of these things that you put on your finger that you buy again for the twenty nine ninety nine, uh, they're, they're useful enough and, and no knock on the garments of the world or anything. It's, 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 it's great. But as, as Trey referenced, you might always put it on your, your middle wave finger and get say 95. But if you put on your index finger, you get 98, just know that you might get different readings, but the consistency is what's important. So in other words, every time you put on your middle wave finger, uh, you better be getting 95, uh, knowing that that's your normal. If all of a sudden you're getting 85, then again, you can use it to say, okay, something's off here. That makes sense. Yeah. Well, it's like using a power meter, right? If you switch a brand to power meter, you got to redo your FTP. <laughs> exactly. Like, right. Right. To having yeah. that, you know, just sticking with the same equipment in the same, you know, mode of use, like you said, is kind of 
key for creating a best uh, baseline. So does RA variability change with this at all? Or Hey, one thing, Tyler, I want to back yeah, sure. up just a little bit. Um, in reference to your question earlier about kind of how things affect the heart, one thing I'd like to point out that may help people visualize is your heart is not like your leg muscles. Your heart is encased very snugly inside your body around all the organs. There's not this free space around it for it to be able to move and do everything. So uh, even your body position and how you're sitting or how you can, can affect how your heart operates. Uh, so anytime you have inflammation or something in that tight space, it can really cause the heart to have to work abnormally. I wouldn't say harder, but different. And so all those little changes like Rain was talking about, uh, a lot of that's attributed to the fact that your heart really is in a fixated position. Uh, so anytime it is some sort of anomaly is introduced to it, 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 it can cause a lot more problems than say, say your quad muscle that's just kind of floating off your skeletal bone and encased by skin. So, uh, it's, it, it's, it's kind of funny how it works, but it's, uh, that's kind of what I was going through. I mean, I didn't have any permanent damage, but, uh, there was a lot of things trying to compensate for each other while I was recovering. Well, and to add to what Trey's saying, to be even more specific, you have a pericardium around the heart that, um, if, if the space there gets filled with fluid can act almost like we know as, you know, compartment syndrome. And, and you can, I mean, you can have issues from um, pericarditis. And of course, both of those structures can get inflamed and you can have something called excuse me, paramyocarditis. And, uh, you know, you got the double whammy in that case, but the, the same idea applies to something that's innate about the heart. Uh, as Trey said, you know, it's positioned snugly in the, the chest cavity is one thing, but even within the heart structure, you've got this pericardium that contains the heart. And if that gets swollen, uh, it can shut down the heart function as well. So, yeah, it, it, it's, you know, it's a strong organ, but there are a lot of things that can go wrong. So uh, heart variability then, is that a metric that matters in this case? Absolutely. If your heart is, is inflamed and, and struggling, you're going to see very little, uh, unless, it's, <laughs> unless you're into an electrical disturbance where you see atrial fibrillation, which technically would be extreme heart rate variability, <laughs> right? But no, um, you know, when you're in uh, fight or flight mode like that and, and you've got 25, 30 beats per minute above average resting heart rate, your, your HRV is going to be pretty flat. Yeah. And I guess I, I want to clarify because it took me a few times back when I first heard of HRV is that you actually want some variability in the the heartbeat, right? Like if it's super consistent and like almost like a second hand on a watch, that's actually not ideal, right? Correct. That means you're in uh, sympathetic nervous system mode way too much. You, you need to have it relaxed and it'll change uh, and, and stop me if, you know, I'm going too far in HRV, but you know, it, it should change with your breath. Hmm. you know, during your breathing. Uh, and, and that's yeah. a good sign. That means that you're in parasympathetic mode and, and you want it to be fluctuating uh, like that. So yes. Cool. It's, okay. So, so now we've got, I think the main one that I've heard is for, you know, with relation to COVID and stuff and just kind of like checking is body temperature and then blood oxygenation, resting heart rate. And, you know, maybe for the hardcore athlete, you know, checking that HRV, 
Are, are there other like just kind of simple things that people can either do with no equipment or super cheap equipment at home to just kind of like stay in tune with their body with this and, you know, check whether or not they think they have COVID? Well, I think you hit upon the ones that, I mean, you don't have to have a, a, um, you know, like an Oura ring or something like that, uh, or a, a nice Garmin watch, you know, you can take the old finger to the carotid, uh, pulse to see what's going on there. And, and really, I guess for athletes, it's pretty easy because a lot of the same signs and symptoms, uh, are equated to, or, you know, often we, we say, oh, I'm just overtrained. So those, you know, the fatigue, the, the muscle soreness, uh, those are very similar and that's what makes it again, um, dangerous, if you will, not to be too dramatic, but you know, it's easy for an athlete to blow it off and say, ah, oh, that's just, you know, I've been, I've decompensated because I've been out for two weeks or four weeks or whatever with this, this doggone virus. So of course I feel this way the day after now in Trey's case, obviously it was, it was demonstrable. I mean, it was hugely different. So it wasn't, you couldn't blow it off Trey. I know, but there are others that maybe, you know, you don't have that much of an extreme that would uh, push through it. And that would be a mistake. Hmm. Um, so Dre, tell me, like, I'm curious, what was the, um, kind of the all clear signal that you got from the doctor? What was it that he or she, I think it was a, he, right. The, the Dr. Yeah. Who was, uh, checking that he finally said, okay, come on in, let's do that stress test. And then after that, they're like, okay, have at it, go ride as hard as you want. Like what, what were they checking and what were those numbers or measurements? Yeah. So I, I was fortunate to actually, I have a, I used to work with sports teams and whatnot. So I've always, and I've had tons of injuries over the years. So I've always had uh, relationships with some sports minded doctors and I was lucky to find him and get an appointment with him uh, since he was actually kind of in the midst of studying this in athletes. I, Cause I, literally I went there for a heart problem. I didn't go there for COVID. I went there to get my heart checked out. Um, and it just so happened it turns out it wasn't my heart. And, and, but I was with an expert that not was just familiar with an athlete's heart, but also COVID and an athlete. So, uh, you know, the, the approach, even when he was seeing me, despite, uh, his involvement, he, uh, there was still a lot of learning and, uh, I, I think the best word to use is caution, uh, cautionary measures as far as what I was doing once I got the all clear. Um, he, he, in fact, it was, it's, it was pretty funny. I was being told not to ride at a certain point, but then weeks later, uh, once there was more results coming, more hard results coming in, uh, more data on his studies, uh, Honestly, I was somewhat relieved, um, and he was too, I'm sure, uh, for just everyone. But uh, once I got the clear, uh, and even after my, I passed like flying colors. In fact, I was in the 100 percentile for my lung function. My heart rate was great when I did the stress test. Uh, everything operated 100 percent normal. Uh, but I was still told uh, spend the next you know month keeping my heart rate below 130, which, you know, where I live, it's impossible <laughs> because we've got hills. You know, I can't get out of my neighborhood uh, without, um, you know, hitting near my max. So uh, that was a challenge. In fact, I even just took a little extra time off. But um, once that month passed, 
uh, and I probably took a little more time. I think I was just being a little paranoid. Plus, I was busy with other stuff. But uh, I probably started writing a couple of weeks past my month uh, long, uh, you know, period of time that I was told to keep my heart rate down. And it was like all of a sudden I was in a better shape than I was, you know, back then back in July when this first started. And I hadn't ridden a bike since then. So, um, you know, I, you know, my muscles were tired, but my lungs weren't holding me back like they had before. So, uh, now at the time my blood oxygen was better. Uh, I was hitting more in the low to mid nineties and my heart rate, my resting heart rate was getting better. Uh, it wasn't what I would call perfect, but, uh, a couple of months after that, I mean, it's like it was a year ago. Um, it just took a while. Uh, my body, I think, you know, your body is like a, like, it's very smart, you know, everything talks to each other. Uh, and when my blood oxygen was low, my heart rate was trying to compensate for it. Uh, and that takes a long time to adjust. It's, I don't, you know, even I was surprised how long it took because, you know, I knew it wasn't going to be an on-off switch and, oh, you're better. You don't have code anymore. So your body is going to be fully recovered. Uh, I had years ago, I don't, I don't ever get sick. Uh, I think I've been to the doctor twice in the last 15 years for something. And once was for the, I had the H1N1 uh, flu and someone gave it to me. And I remember getting that and it was terrible. I had 104 fever. I mean, it was, it knocked me on my ass. And then it took me about a month to recover, but after a month I was fine. COVID, I didn't really have that many symptoms. I just felt fatigued, but it took, it was probably start to finish about four months before I went back to normal. So, uh, so Rand, yeah. Rand, why is that? Like, you know, if you, if the COVID, most people recover from the virus, you know, quote unquote recover, uh, to where, you know, they're kind of cleared to go back out in public and stuff in like, you know, two weeks or so. Why is it that, you know, you suffer from kind of the heart inflammation and these other issues for, you know, weeks or months afterwards? Well, let me just state for sure, kind of the obvious. We don't know enough about this virus because it's a new one, right? And so we don't know all the factors that are involved. I think in, in this particular virus, um, <clears throat> The genetics play a role more so than in some of the other viruses. You know, there's there's um, what we call SNPs, um, single poly, well, the, uh, mutations in the um, in the genes. For example, a lot of people have ACE2 receptors, but others have ACE1D receptors, and they seem to, and it's still early yet, but uh, it seems to give some people better protection. Uh, there are those that have. Um, something called Leiden factor five uh, uh, genes uh, and they're what we call heterozygous. They have uh, just, well, actually most people have only one. Um, and I say most, the average person has one of these, not neither of them. Um, uh, <laughs> but some people are what we call homologous for them. They have both of them and they tend to, to uh, form blood clots much more easily. So you can see with what little we know about the virus that, um, there's some genetic advantages and disadvantages there, very distinct ones because of the way this virus works. And as you know, it, it, it tends to create a, 
enough inflammation in the vasculature to to increase the formation of clots. So uh, that's part of it. But the other part, Trey, you said something early on um, that a month or so afterwards, and I probably have the timing right or wrong, but you said I felt better than you know before I got the virus in July. To me, that screams of most of the athletes that I know. You were, and we don't have to use the official overtrained uh, moniker, but you sounds like you were behind the eight ball, okay? Which makes sense. It totally adds up. I'm not saying I'm right, but it's a good guess, I think, because you did get the virus, okay? And again, most athletes are more susceptible. The ones that are pushing, like it sounds like you might have been pushing up to that point in July. And well, um, full, full disclosure, I'm not a classically trained athlete like I used to be. I used to be you know, what would be considered an Olympic level athlete. I was doing two to 400 miles a week on a bike, but uh, I think a lot of it had to do with, it was July versus going into fall because it was a hot day too. So, um, so I was having a lot better day, but yeah, I, I, and I think a lot of it may have just been the perception of feeling a lot better because when you go several months to not, you know, riding and all of a sudden that first ride, you actually have a good day. I, th I think my perception was probably that I felt like I was in better shape, even though I probably wasn't. <laughs> well, fresh that legs over fit legs, right? That's the old exactly. Thing. Yeah. Yeah. That might be the upside, right? It's oh. like, if you get it and you're an athlete, just consider it a uh, forced um, rest period. But yeah, but, but like, oh, absolutely. To the overtrained, the only times I used to ever get sick is when I was overtrained. Because my immune system was just, it was just shot. And uh, yeah, it was it was crazy how often I would get a like a slight fever uh, when I was young and healthy. But I was just completely taxing myself way past the limit. So, Well, here we are in December and, you know, everything's, uh, reminds me of a joke. Uh, first day in 2021, we're going to, we're going to see 2020 hindsight, right? <laughs> Sorry, bum, bum, bum. Um, <laughs> looking back, you know, here, even, you know, a month makes a big difference. If I were in your stead, I would have gone through what we now know are some diagnostics that would have helped us decide when to go ahead and pull the trigger for you to give you full reign to go you know, up and down the mountains all you want. Typically, and this is just the latest literature, doesn't mean it's right, but it's it's what we know now. Um, three to six months is the wait time. If you have any signs and symptoms like you had, Trey, um, without going any further, that's just the rule. Now, if you can afford to get a, well, well the gold standard would be a, a, a CMR, a, a cardiac magnetic resonance imaging of your heart, um, because that would tell us, do you have the, we'd be able to visualize it. Do we, do you have the inflammation in your heart? Is there any scarring or fibrosis? Because we would definitely want to shut you down at that point and, and make sure we give your heart every chance to come back from that, uh, before you started pushing it again. And there's something called, um, uh, gadolinium we would use with that. And there's some very good data, very solid data at this point showing that uh, this, they call it late gadolinium enhancement, LGE. Um, if that's elevated, there's a very strong correlation. Of course, you always combine it with other things that you learn in, di uh, in diagnosing this, but the, you know, the shape 
of the heart and its function, which we would look at through, say, an echocardiogram. But, um, you know, 84% sensitivity, I believe I'm quoting that right, in picking up myocard uh, myocarditis. And that's important to know because whether, you know, you've got damage in the in the heart or a salon, you need to shut it down to, to give yourself time for it to heal. Um, you can just do what people are doing with COVID who don't feel like testing. If they're exposed to anybody who uh, was proven to have it, they can quarantine themselves for now it's 10 days, but it was 14 days and treat it that way. In other words, you could just say, well, I will, I'll stay off my bike for three, six months, but for, you know, those who want to get back on sooner, um, there are some diagnostics and, and, I'll, and I'll just really quickly finish the list. You know, they, they look at troponins and troponin is an enzyme that's released from a heart that's in stress. But here's the problem when you're dealing with athletes, you can have heart, you know, I hate to call it damage, but within normal limits of damage. I mean, we're, we're out there pushing our heart, just like you have some muscle tissue uh, breakdown, we call it when you're, you know, doing some, some anaerobic uh, work, let's say doing a lot of hills or something uh, or on the track, certainly. Um, and so that's not necessarily diagnostic, but it gives you more information. Um, they definitely want to use uh, an EKG to see if you've got the irregular beats or some tachycardia, for example. Uh, again, most athletes are, uh, um, uh, monitoring at least the former. I mentioned an echocardiogram so you can see the flow and you can actually visualize some abnormal, uh, abnormal, abnormal motion, excuse me, in the heart. And then one thing that a lot of, uh, uh, docs will recommend that's pretty easy to do, especially with new technology is something called a Holter monitor where, you know, you just wear it 24 seven and, and we can pick up on, on, um, uh, heart irregularities in terms of the electrical system, arrhythmia as we call them, because especially healthy hearts, you might get a run, we call it, of, you know, five seconds, 20 seconds, and then it goes away. And again, typical athletes, especially those that are optimistic and can't wait to get back on the bike are going to ignore those. The monitoring system doesn't let that slide by. So th those are the things that I believe most doctors would agree at this point in December, if Trey came in we would say, hey, man, uh, before you do any writing, you, you got you to gotta pass muster with these tests. Cool. I got a question. So, like, for somebody like me who's not had it that I know of, um, assuming I can get the vaccine, you know, or eventually I assume I will, uh, once I have the vaccine in me, do, am I protected against this kind of heart and lung damage? Like, if, if, so if I'm exposed to the virus, um, maybe I don't get sick externally, you know, no like fever and, you know, you know, just kind of general achiness or whatever symptoms, but like, is there a chance that those virus particles are still inside me and able to cause the damage to the heart and lungs? Absolutely. Hmm. It's not hundred percent effective. And oftentimes it's remember you're still getting inoculated by the virus. It's just that once vaccinated, your reaction to it is so much more quick because the body's prepared, but you still get infected. It just doesn't overwhelm you, if you will, the same way if you've never seen the virus before, like so many who've gotten COVID. Hmm. So what do you do? Like, you know, if the symptoms are so mild because you're vaccinated and you're otherwise feeling great, like, I mean, what's, I feel like maybe we should just be checking our heart rate and our blood ox every morning, no matter what from now on and probably wearing a mask everywhere. <laughs> <laughs> well, no, I mean, we carry on like we've been for the last, you know, hundreds of years. So it, it, like, like I mentioned earlier, there's 
viruses that give you myocarditis all the time. And, and myocarditis is an issue for athletes, period, more so than the average person. There's non-viral, non-pathogenic myocarditis just from training too hard. But monitoring the symptoms and arguably the signs, I mean, if you have swollen ankles or something, that's not a good sign. Uh, you know, uh, but again, taken in combination with other symptoms and signs, uh, then, you know, be smart about it. And, and just like Trey noticed, Hey, wait a minute, this isn't how I'm supposed to feel. I'm on a usual ride here and I'm short of breath at this turn. Um, that's when you say, okay, well, yeah, I just had a stomach bug or I just had a cold, um, in hindsight. And, And again, if you've had it three times before, just like someone who's been vaccinated, you're still getting the virus again. Someone gave it back to you somehow, but your body's reacting better to it. Um, it doesn't mean you're uh, not affected by it in any way. It's just less so. But that's something that oftentimes people will say in hindsight, oh, yeah, now, now that I think about it, I have been a little off these last couple of weeks. That's something to keep in mind, certainly, if things aren't going back to normal, if things are going south on you, then it's time to you know pay attention to that flag and, yeah, and, I think, and perhaps visit the doctor. I think one way to look at it, and Rand, please correct me if I'm wrong, but uh, just like you do with any illness, um, if you, even after vaccinated, if you end up getting COVID and you start feeling symptoms, that's kind of when you have to click. You know, you're not really going to be doing any damage to yourself uh, if you get COVID and don't ever feel anything. Like your body's going to tell you uh, when these risks are taking place. Your body's going to speak to you and say, hey, something's wrong. I'm not, if you're feeling fatigued or whatnot, uh, I don't think you're going to be blind to unless you're just totally ignoring everything your body's telling you. I think as long as you're listening to your body, if you become uh, symptomatic or if you start to feel things, uh, you need to start think, thinking to yourself, hey, if I need to stop or I need to get checked out or I need to see what's going on. Um I don't think you can really do any damage to yourself and not feel at least some minor symptoms. So, um, you know, your body's going to tell you if something's going on or not. Well, I think Tyler, you're looking at it from a theoretical standpoint, which would scare anybody. Yeah, I get I'm, it. I'm a little more scared than I was at the beginning of this conversation for sure. Well, but, but Trey's got the practical aspects of it. And, and Trey, you're a perfect example of how, Trey's theory can can fit because you are already affected and arguably the heart was damaged by the time you noticed it. So that's just something that practically speaking, we, you know, how, how do you avoid that unless you uh, apply, you know, Tyler's theory and then practically if, if you know, is it really practical to to wear all these gadgets and, and do this much monitoring. Yeah. But is it worth it? I guess would be the next question, but technically speaking, Tyler, you're correct. And, and that's something that, um, you know, might've been picked up a little earlier for you, Trey, if you had some of these other systems in place, like a pulse oximeter. Um, I don't know if you were, uh, looking at your heart rate at the time beforehand and, and maybe that morning, my, my hallucination is the morning before that ride, you probably had an elevated, resting heart rate. Um, and that would have been a signal, but again, what do we do as athletes? And I'm not making excuses. I'm just getting back to the practical side of it. We go, okay, four to six, I'll just back down a little bit today. You know, if I'm four to six, uh, beats uh, above 
uh, my normal, you know, and supposedly overtrain. If you're an Olympic athlete and you got a coach, maybe you listen and say, no, I'm going to take a day off today. You know, I don't know. And, and, you know, I am, I am part kidding, but I'm also part serious. So, you know, the practical aspects of it are you catch it as soon as you can. Uh, but, uh, Tyler, theoretically, yeah, per what you said, it is, it is possible to prevent this, but you know, it's going to require some work. And again, we have made it, uh, you know, those of us are still standing and breathing through many viruses that have given us, you know, acute myocarditis 50% of the time, which, you know, resolves spontaneously. Uh, it's just every once in a while you get one of these, uh, well, certainly sad cases when an athlete literally drops dead. Uh, from, you know, they call it sudden cardiac, uh, what is this, uh, death syndrome. Um, and, and, you know, depending on what you read, that's five to 25% of the time. It's, it's no small matter, but, um, you know, it's, it's, it's a kind of akin to, uh, and I'll stop after this, but, you know, the, 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 the rare events where, you know, those of us on well, where I am on PCH, you know, get hit by somebody that's looking out over the water, not paying attention. I mean, those, those kind of random things happen. And I don't know what kind of control you have. You either decide I'm not writing on PCH anymore uh, or, or you don't. I mean, and, and, and in this case, it's viruses bounce around and, and you know, it's, it's part of the risk of being an athlete as you. Uh, I mean, the, the good news is, and I, and I will stop at this point. When we do get these, these uh, whether it's atrial fibrillation we're more inclined to get or a virus, thankfully, we are stronger. We're better prepared to deal with them because we're more fit and, and presumably healthier. So that's, that's the upside and how I guess most people would rationalize, you know, staying on the road and, and doing what we do anyway. Right. I like yeah, that. I think, I think that's a good positive note to mostly wrap up on. Yeah, I think, <laughs> I think a good takeaway and related to what Ryan just said is, uh, you know, I, exercise actually sparked my symptoms. Like, uh, you know, I, I, in a sense, blame exercise for taking my COVID to a level that I, I don't think it would have gotten to. Uh, so, uh, you know, that, the awareness now, like today, months after the fact, I feel much better uh, mentally about uh, what I'm in for, what I'm not in for because of the information, what my experience was, uh, because the, the concern of the athletes for the most of us, except for like the rare, you know, isolated incident, like rain was speaking of, uh, you know, there's a lot less to worry about than we think. So as long as we know what to do, uh, and know the steps and the protocols and not to overdo it, um, you know, the fact that, you know, like right now, uh, I'm not scared to get COVID again because I know that I can probably get it. It won't be that bad. And as long as I don't push my body and make it worse, I'll be fine. It's gonna, I'll be frustrated because it's a kind of a long-term, uh, you know, t period of time I have to take off. But... Uh, I think that's really the worst of it. And I consider everything going on and what others go through. Uh, yeah, I feel like I'm pretty lucky. So our concern is not dying so much as it is as causing permanent damage in the long term. And right now, the media is not talking a lot about that. They're talking about the stuff that scares people and death rates and this and that. And athletes, you know, we can make ourselves so much more subtle to getting COVID or, or at least some, or being symptomatic from COVID 
you know, and I'm hoping to get that kind of awareness out there more because uh, you're going to be 99% fine. So as long as you know the steps to take and kind of, you know, take it easy for a while and not do the traditional, oh, I have a cold. I'm going to go out and get my blood flowing, get some more oxygen to my blood because it'll help me heal faster. Because that's a lot of what we do when we don't feel good is we go out and push through the pain, you know, right? Hard. Yeah. And uh, so, and that's the complete opposite. So just having the knowledge uh, from this podcast and other stuff out there, it's, it, I think that's a key in, you know, controlling the COVID if you get it, whether you have a vaccine or not, uh, knowing the steps to take and knowing that you can't listen to your body <laughs> when even, even afterwards, uh, you know, you need to kind of err on the side of caution is the best way I guess I could put it. All right on. Rand, any last thoughts to add? No, I agree. I mean, you know, it's a learning situation we've got going on here. And if nothing else to take away is, um, you know, these viruses can cause more damage than we thought. This one's particularly nasty. So it raises the awareness. And that's, yeah, I agree. That's part of what we're doing right here. Awesome. Well, thank you guys so much for making the time. I've definitely learned a lot. And um, I hope our listeners did too. I appreciate it. Thank you, sir. Thanks for having me. You know, we're almost a year into this coronavirus pandemic, and there's a lot of things that we've, we're still learning, but this episode may seem like it came a little bit late in the game. However, I really wanted to be able to share some of the latest news and knowledge on what the long-term effects of COVID could be for a cyclist, especially when it comes to lung and heart health. So I really appreciate our guest's time and for Trey sharing his personal stories with this with us. In the meantime, things are still developing. Be careful because we really don't know what the super long-term effects are, you know, months and years and decades down the road are. And I want all of us to be healthy and live long, happy lives. So wear a mask, social distance, be safe, get the vaccine when it comes out, and we'll see you guys on a ride very, very soon. Thanks a ton and catch you next time.